listening to Ouija Broads. This is Liz. This is Devin. Devin, it is time to do part two. Oh my gosh. Of this exciting treasure <laughs> shipwreck story. There's so much money in the water. There's so much money in the water now, and we're jumping right into it, because there's no new patrons to thank, because we just are, are taping this right now. Did somebody give <laughs> us money in the last five minutes? It's possible. <laughs> but I didn't go on the website, so I don't know. <laughs> so to recap, we're talking about the good ship Brother Jonathan, a very strange side wheeler that has a steam wheel like a like a old time showboat and also sails that goes up from San Francisco to Vancouver basically gets skewered on a rock <laughs> almost everyone dies the people that survive include 11 members of crew and some female passengers and some kids there are significant people on this boat that we've talked about, like General George Wright and his wife. Mm-hmm. There are people like Rosanna Keenan, who are well-known figures in San Francisco and in Victoria and Vancouver. There's a lot of 1860s famous people mm-hmm. involved with this wreck. So I'm going to tell you about a couple others of them and what we know about their relationship to the ship. Before we get into the treasure part, but some of it goes a long way to explain why this was so high profile. Okay. Along with the people that we've talked about already, one person who is also on the ship is Anson Henry, who was a friend of Lincoln. (laughs) He was a friend of the president. He was a doctor. Okay. And he got a lot of what you'd call patronage positions out Mm. west, Mm -hmm. right? Where, you know, he knew Lincoln for a long time, and Lincoln would say, okay, you can go be an Indian agent for the Oregon Territory. You can go be the doctor at the Grand Ronde Indian Reservation. You Mm -hmm. can be this, that, or the other. Anson Henry thought he would go back to D.C. after the 1864 election and he'd become the commissioner of Indian affairs. Okay. But Lincoln said, no, I'm not going to do that. And Henry is like, all right, well, that's unfortunate, but we're still bros, I assume. (laughs) He goes to Richmond, Virginia, which is where he is on April 14th, 1865, when John Wilkes Booth shoots Lincoln in the head. So Henry hustles down there within the day within the day his letter is very tender and i i will try to link it somewhere because he's a very good writer and he talks very earnestly about the conflicting feelings of you know being a friend but also a physician but also somebody who's aware that lincoln is more than a friend or a patient or a dead body Mm -hmm. and he spends six weeks in the white house after this with Mary Todd oh. looking after her and is the one who eventually brings her back to Chicago. Oh. He leaves her earlier in this year and is making his way back to his family in Oregon mm. from this beyond failed jaunt back to DC. <laughs> yeah. Like not only does he not get the job, but his friend dies. Yeah. And he has to deal with handling, helping the widow out and oh, all yeah. this kind of stuff. So that's April, right? And the ship goes down at the end of July. It's an eventful like, few months for Henry. That's an eventful few months. 
One thing that I like about this, the only thing that I really know about what happened after the shipwreck for his family, is that Mary Todd, who was still very much in mourning, Mm -hmm. of course, writes a letter to Henry's widow. And what she says is, among other things, we've both been called upon to resign to our Heavenly Father, two of the best men and the most devoted husbands that two unhappy women ever possessed. Fucking tragic, dude. Yeah, I hope if there was a kind of karmic reward that him looking after Mary Todd hopefully meant there was somebody to look after his widow. Absolutely. Now, also on the ship was his worst enemy. (laughs) And this would be a great murder mystery if for some reason they decided to go with that. Yeah, he had his nemesis on this ship? Yes. His nemesis. The other friend of Lincoln, which sounds like a euphemism for something. It does. Who... (laughs) who is on the ship is a man named Victor Smith. He was formerly the collector of customs for the Puget Sound District, and he's going back into Washington Territory. He was a big supporter of Lincoln during his election campaign because he used to be a newspaper publisher. Okay. Lincoln was like, I appreciate all your support from your Cincinnati newspaper while I was trying to get elected. Would you like to be the customs inspector? Which, from time immemorial, has been a great gig to line your pockets with, right? Oh, yeah. Smith is, I wouldn't say it's the smallest amount of power you've seen go to somebody's head, because it is quite a bit of power, but here's how much power it isn't. It isn't enough power that if you feel that the Custom House should be in Port Angeles instead of Port Townsend, and Port Townsend says no, you may not go get a ship with cannons and threaten them with it. Can't you? You are not that powerful. (laughs) I am also not that powerful, so I know how it feels. (laughs) When he came back from D.C., after getting his gift from Lincoln, the great earmarker, he comes back and he's like, you know, fuck you, the custom house is over here now. And they said no. And he said, if you do not turn the records over in an hour, I'm going to fire on you with the cannons from this ship. That's not okay. They did it. (laughs) But but that was a little too far even for Washington territory. Yeah. He had to get fired. (laughs) He had to get fucked. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you'd think, right? That he goes back east because he's lost this job. And then he gets promoted to the position of special federal treasury no. agent for the Pacific Coast. Oh, no. <laughs> that's that's failing upward. <laughs> it is failing upward. <laughs> Some people claim that when we say influential people in Washington Territory made sure that Smith was fired, what they mean is Anson Henry hmm. made sure Smith was fired. Okay. So they were very much not on each other's side. And okay. it's amazing to me that they ended up on the same ship when there were so many ships doing this trip <laughs> all the time. <laughs> As a treasury guy, he also had resources with him, but I don't have like a full accounting sure. of what it was. One important thing to note about Smith, Mr. I'm gonna attack you for not handing the records over. He was supposed to be on an earlier ship, but as he was coming around to get back to the Northwest, the other ship he was on, an Atlantic side wheeler named the Golden Rule, wrecked (laughs) on a reef (laughs) outside Nicaragua. 
this man and he got stranded. <laughs> this man, death had said, "You." I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure when, but I know it's going to involve a boat. Yeah, he and the brother Jonathan itself are both in Final Destination movies, right? <laughs> it's like no. Yes. Bam! Now you're on top of a rock. Yes! This is what's happening. (laughs) Spent a couple weeks in San Francisco bouncing back from the stress of that before he got on the brother Jonathan. (laughs) Oh, Oh dear. I'd feel worse for him if he hadn't just taken a customs house hostage with a cannon. I know. That's... You don't... No. What are you doing? You don't get to do that. One other notable person on the ship was named James Nesbitt, and he was a newspaper publisher and a writer. During the chaos of those 45 minutes, what eyewitness reports say is that Nesbitt was oddly calm. So a lot of people are running back and forth, you know, can they get off the ship? Can they get into the lifeboats? All this. He's just taking notes. He's writing stuff in a little notebook, is using a pencil so that the ink won't run, and he's writing out his will. Wow. And he's writing notes to his family, and he's putting them in his pockets, and then, again, putting two life jackets on himself so that his body will be found and that they will get the notes to his family. My goodness. So the only note that we know about is one that went actually to Elmira Hopkins, who's just consistently identified as the wife of a San Francisco insurance agent. I'm like, what? What? Uh, Why her? Why her? Like, is it so that the family gets the life insurance? Did he just know her? Yeah. What is going on? I don't know. But here's what his note said. My dear Elmira, a thousand affectionate adieus. You spoke of my sailing on Friday, Hangman's Day, and the unlucky Jonathan. Well, here I am with death before me. My love to you all. To Casper, to Dita, to Belle, to Melly, and little Myra. Kiss her for me. Never forget Grandpa. God. That's so sad. God, that's fucking tragic. That reaction is just... I, I can't get over it. That no. He, he just starts writing his little notes. I'm... No. What a thing to do. The gravity of that would be so intense. Yeah. And it's so odd to me that he's like, you talked about the unlucky Jonathan. You talked about me sailing on Hangman's Day. Yeah. There's just this weird vibe. And at the end of the last episode, I teased that one of the people who contributed to there being so much treasure on the ship was Major F.W. Eddy, Mm -hmm. sometimes E.W. Eddy. You know how old newspapers are. It's a free-for-all with the alphabet. Free-for-all. He has (laughs) $200,000 to pay the army with. In 1865, like, you could buy, like, the country for that. I was going to say, the Louisiana Purchase was way less than that, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And before he sails... Eddie says, I have a bad feeling. I have a feeling that the brother Jonathan voyage is going to end tragically. Oh, my. And he actually brings all his account books up to date at work, completes and signs his will, and pays all his debts. Yo! Before he gets on the Jonathan. And I'm like, first of all, what did you know? Secondly, why did you pay your debts? What? (laughs) (laughs) You Scorpio? You fucking Scorpio? No unfinished business, Liz. Come on, man. And you're like, whatever, I'd be going to heaven with a clear conscience. 
If you have that much premonition, why get on the boat, dude? Why'd you get on the boat, dude? Like, I understand why the captain got on the boat. Like, it was his job and his <laughs> boss was being a dick and yeah. it worked out okay before. Yeah. But, like, this guy's like, well, I'm gonna die. <laughs> okay. That aspect of it weirds me out, that he had the weird energy, Yeah, Captain had the weird energy, apparently the newspaper editor yeah. had the weird energy. Yeah. I'm like, did you all just have the darkest senses of humor ever, <laughs> and you made these jokes all the time, yeah. and then it just became very unfortunate after the fact, yeah. or was something weird happening? I don't know. Would it have been any different if all you little emos had met in port before you got on the ship and been like, I've got a bad feeling? Well, I got a bad feeling too wait a minute maybe we should not do this because then there's no story (sighs) with the treasure that's on the boat because of the various people who are involved here there's annual treaty payments for tribes there's the army's payroll there's wells fargo shipments that are going to portland and vancouver there's all the gold that the passengers have many of whom you know they're not gonna like get to Vancouver and transfer the money out of their credit union. Oh, yeah. They're taking the money with them. Yeah. So, like I was saying, $50 million in today's money goes down. Let me tell you one strange thing that just kind of is floating out there, not connected to anything, but I want to acknowledge it. And I'm going to read it to you just like I found it and then talk about the context here. So, this was in Offbeat, Oregon. On the afternoon of July 30th, 1865, three-year-old Charles Brooks burst into tears. Charles was staying with his grandparents in California's Napa Valley while his mother, Mrs. A.C. Brooks, and his aunt, Mary Place, journeyed to Portland. Charles had been perfectly happy there until a little after 2 p.m. when he suddenly melted down and could not be consoled. His puzzled grandparents did the best they could, but he wouldn't stop crying. All they could get the little guy to say was something about his mother and Aunt Mary going down in water. More than 300 miles away, just off the Oregon-California border, Charles's mother and aunt were drowning, along with 223 of their fellow passengers, on the sidewheel steamer Brother Jonathan in the cold waters of the North Pacific. Somehow, if the following week's Oregon Statesman newspaper, the source of this account, is to be believed... Little Charles knew. No, I actually tried to go look at the Oregon Statesman mm-hmm. corresponding to this time. I did get a lot of good articles that are original sources related to the wreck. But when it comes to this specific story, unfortunately, the weekly Oregon Statesmans are archived on the website, but the dailies are not. Gotcha. So I was not able to go and look at the original of this. It's a very familiar kind of story, I think. Yeah. And I don't know what to make of it without knowing more but it's spooky so i want to tell you oh it's so spooky it's such a cool inclusion i mean it's a tragic very sad inclusion but i'm so glad you told it to me because it's creepy that is more or less where the contemporary part of the story ends out of the bodies that went into the water they only get about 70 back more than i expected it makes it hard to figure out how many people were there in the first place and one of the problems that they have as well is you know it's 1865 yeah so what they're publishing when they're trying to identify these people who were out here in the wild west is they're publishing stuff like 
a white woman, apparently about 45 years old, 5 feet 8 inches high, rather fleshy, light brown hair, long and mixed with some white, had a dark woolen dress, ribbed, the bottom embroidered with red and black buttons with white set, gold ring mended on inside with a piece of silver, and she's number 42. You know? Dang. Yeah, that's not enough to identify anyone. No. The bodies get spread out really far. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, there's a letter to the editor from somebody who found one and said, you know, I looked in his wallet and here's the IOUs that he had to this person. And here's, you know, all this information just basically going, I just happened to find this guy and... You know, they, they don't have a forensics unit. Seriously, all this guy can do is say, I'm going to give the best description I can to the newspaper and hope somebody recognizes who the hell I'm talking about. Right. These descriptions are being printed in West Coast newspapers when some of these mm-hmm. people will be prospectors from back east whose families just assume they made it to California, made it to Alaska, aren't looking at the San Francisco Chronicle to try to identify a body. By the time that they get this information that the the ship has gone down and it was the ship their loved one was on, yeah. then they're not going to be able to get Oregon Statesman no. archives going back a couple months. No. Like, it's very depressing. Yes. There is a memorial for the victims, which I will talk about at the end, because I will try to finish up with some actual sites related to the incident that you can go to. Oh, cool. Before I get into all that, though, I'm going to give you the chance to talk about our sponsor. I love the chance to talk about our sponsor. You've heard us talk about her before. This is our gal, Jessie, who is the cowgirl realtor of our dreams. She on Instagram is jessie underscore sells underscore land. Or you can go to her website, which I like doing because there's way more photos, Washington State Landforsale.com. Liz, I'm really excited to tell you about her this week because do you remember when you and I were going to buy a church together? I think about it every time I drive past that church. Yeah. Because it's still, yeah. you know, down there at the, it, it was the one, if you're in Spokane, folks, yeah. like almost when you get to the freeway that is like, what is it, down Perry? Down Perry, yeah. Like right, right toward the end of Perry, the big gray one. And yeah. I have no idea how realistic that was as a plan for us. It felt like the kind of illogical thing that we might have been oblivious enough to somehow pull off. Oh, yeah. And as I recall correctly, this may have still been before the... No, it, it can't have been before the, the subprime mortgage crisis. But I think it was still... <sighs> influenced by that because maybe right. it was before actually now well, that it, I think about it. it that was, would explain a lot. Yeah, I think that I think it must have been because it would have been right about two thousand eight or so. Mm-hmm. We were living together at the house on Hogan and that was two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Aaron and I moved out in two thousand October two thousand nine. It may so, somebody totally would have given us money to buy a big oh, church they, and they turn would it into have. A display space, and we would still be dealing with that decision to this day. We would be, and it would have been a great decision, and I wouldn't have regretted it for a moment. So what I was hoping was that you would, instead of the, like, 80K they wanted, I was hoping you'd rustle up (laughs) 1.1 million with me, because Jesse has a historic church in Everett for sale. It is beautiful it is beautiful it's if you go to her website and then at the top of the website she's got like sections this is the historic washington it's three down in historic washington 
This place, oh my gosh, it's 1930 historic church. It's already been gutted and converted into a residence with multi-level living. It's got like this brand new kitchen. I mean, everything in it's brand new, obviously. They renovated the whole thing. The ceilings are these beautiful vaulted ceilings. There's this loft over the kitchen, living room. You know, from the photos, of course, they've got like this little library under the loft. I want to live in a church. I want to live in this church so badly. It is gorgeous. And it looks like they've has, they've salvaged um, some of the historic Doric. That's really funny. The historic <laughs> Doric columns from the church. Oh, my goodness. And all it takes, all it takes is a move to Everett and uh, almost $1.2 million. I think I may have found it, but the website, when it loads for me, does not have sections that include historic Washington on them. So I don't know what you're talking about. Oh! And I can't find it easily. <laughs> Isn't that weird? I get to her website through the link in her Instagram bio. The link in her bio is WashingtonStateLandForSale.com slash 2244806. Yeah, Okay, that does, yes. Yeah. So that takes you to a Western Washington Historic Homes (gasps) thing. Isn't it amazing? I want both of them. I I want this this Everett Church, but I got sidetracked by this thing in Seattle. No, I want to see it. Let me see it, Jesse. Jesse. 1214 Warren Avenue North. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look at that thing. That's a Mary Poppins house. Oh, that's a Mary Poppins house. This is gorgeous. Look at those two-story Corinthian columns. Like, get out. That's so sexy. out of here. Folks, we only need to pool enough money to get together. (laughs) $9 million. Uh, It's got a finished basement, so y'all can crash. It's got nine fireplaces. I don't see. Wow. I don't see oh, how many bedrooms. Oh, this is bedrooms. so house looking inside. I thought is it would it? be more church looking inside. Ooh. Oh, yes, absolutely has been. <gasps> Whoa! I just saw the picture of like the main area with the, mm-hmm. the ceiling that the goes all the way up to the ceiling. Roof. Dang! The, the wood plank ceiling. Oh, I want it so bad. I want it so bad. Those are beautiful, beautiful historic things ah very exciting isn't that amazing oh so good thank you so much for sponsoring this episode jesse folks i hope you do go give her a look on instagram or her website because some of these properties are just like chef's kiss perfect yeah it's jesse j-e-s-s-e I mean, I would do this anyway, because I I go on Zillow, actually, and I do the thing you never do online, which is I sort high to low. (laughs) And I want to see what expensive houses look like inside. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I find some real wild shit, and it's exciting. Normally, it's boring, unfortunately, but I'm nosy, and and websites like this really facilitate it, so I'm going to be looking at these houses. Oh, man. You need to walk through a rich neighborhood at dusk when it's dark out and their lights are on, but their curtains aren't closed and peek in the windows from the sidewalk like a normal person. Like the rest of us do. Why not both? Por que no los dos? Touche. Touche, my friend. Thank you, Jesse. We'll jump back to the story, but we appreciate your support as always. Thank you, Jesse. But let's talk about some treasure. Oh, let's do The treasure hunt began before they were even done finding bodies. Yeah. 
like within two weeks, there were people out there trying to get the various treasures that had gone down with the ship. Now, the ship went down to a depth that was eventually identified in its final resting place as being 275 feet deep. So that's about nine-tenths as tall as the Statue of Liberty, because I'm back on my favorite website, which tells me (laughs) how big things are in terms of other things. I have never seen the Statue of Liberty, so I'm trying to figure out, is that a lot or is that a little? If I saw her in real life, would I say, wow, she's quite shrimpy? Or would I think she's towering above me? If it helps, it is one and a half times as tall as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I'm assuming, like... A story is what, like 10 feet tall. So if it's 290 feet, this is less than a 30 story building, but that's still a tall ass building. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when water is in the mix and it's the water that we're talking about, which is so terrifying. Just spooky water. But that's how deep this thing ended up. And one thing that they'll figure out later is they're not even looking in remotely the right place because obviously it's not that hard to figure out. Where it went down. Yeah. Because it was on this rock. Yeah. So you just go look at the rock and you're like, it's around there. Yeah. No, as we will eventually find out, it's two miles away. Whoa. <laughs> it, it drifted yeah. that much as it... It drifted. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. So let's talk about how they figured that out. Let's do. In the 1930s, a fisherman pulling in his net found a crumpled, rusty mass in it. And it was one of the old, patented, metallic lifeboats. Oh, gosh. According to this fisherman, wedged under one of the seats was a rotten leather suitcase containing 22 pounds of gold. (laughs) Yes, please. I know. I want to be a fisherman. You're like, like, no dead bodies and just gold? Okay, that's cool. Sounds okay. The offbeat Oregon author Finn J.D. John was very skeptical about this story because he said leather doesn't last 70 years under 250 feet of seawater, especially not in a crab fishery. And as the meme goes, I don't know enough about leather under seawater to disprove that. I, but <laughs> I guess I don't either, but like, didn't they find shoes with the Titanic? I mean, that was 1914 to whatever, James Cameron, so I don't know. 1912, yeah. When it comes to decay and decomposition, never say never. Yeah, it's cold down there, there's pressure. I don't know, but why am I arguing with someone who's probably much more of an expert about this than I am? If they talk about the same stuff we talk about, I'm not sure there is expertise (laughs) in these areas to a degree. But no, I'm sure there's like a forensic person who could tell you, you know, what factors would make leather survive or not. Part of the reason I think why this author is very skeptical about the fishermen is that, as we've talked about with Forest Fenn's treasure and some of these other treasures, the legal status of treasure is often very complicated. Oh. And... During the time period when this fisherman claimed to have found that treasure, he wouldn't have gotten to keep it. Oh. So you don't get to hear about it oh. until the time it's legal for him to keep it. <laughs> I mean. And then he can't remember where he found it. Of course he can't. Apparently. <laughs> oh, dear. I think it's this way across the UK. Maybe it's only England. But anyway, when I when I have to publish stuff online about Viking hordes that were found in some farmer's field in England, it's basically like, 
Well, the guy who found it gets half, and then the guy whose land it's on gets half. Easy. Wow. There you go. They get half of the treasure, or they get half of the value of the treasure? Half of the value of the treasure? I don't know. I'm obviously not reading these articles very well before I post them (laughs) for a national museum, so, like, way to call me out, or way for me to call myself out. But my memory Um, of it was that they, basically, it gets split down the middle. hmm, Okay. I found it. I did all the work, but it was technically your land, so you should get some of this, too. The legal side of this will get so much worse before it gets better. Man, I'm glad I'm not a maritime lawyer. I know, right? For over 125 years, nobody can find the brother Jonathan. They know where it went down. They know it's there. But like all these other pieces in the graveyard of the Pacific. Yeah. It could be anywhere. (laughs) We don't know if it's like spread across a debris field that's five miles wide. Mm -hmm. You don't know what the hell happened. Yeah. They know where it went down, and they know where the fishermen found the stuff. And specifically in the 90s, a young man from Medford, Oregon, named Don Knight, goes into the treasure hunting business with one of those little mini-subs. Oh, yeah. Like from the beginning of Titanic. Yeah, just like the beginning of Titanic. Yeah. One of the reasons Don Knight may have known where to look is, according to at least one resource I found, his dad was the fisherman. (laughs) I will say that's intriguing because I can see a couple storylines for that, right? One is that he catches the treasure hunting bug because his dad found this amazing piece of salvage. The other is that his dad knows more than he's telling people. Right. And passes the information down once the kid is old enough to actually go out there in the freezing water and get the shit. (laughs) I call shenanigans. I don't know. (laughs) Don Knight works very hard with this organization called Deep Sea Research. And they get one of those little mini subs, and on October 1st, 1993, they finally find it. Part of the reason why it took so long is because our understanding of oceanic currents and buoyancy had to advance to the point where we could understand what a ship like the Brother Jonathan might do in the circumstances. Okay. And what happened is that air was trapped inside it, so it did not go straight down. It had, even with two holes in it, and getting torn apart. Wow. Once it comes off the rock, it doesn't just go straight down. Yeah. Because it is light enough that it's like dropping a paper boat in a stream, right? It's getting bounced everywhere. And ends up two miles away from where they think it's going to be. Wow. It's just kind of gently like blurble blurbling all the way down. (laughs) That's a nice way to think about it. I'm picturing it. Like when you look inside a clothes washer that has one of the windows in the front. Yeah. And it just push, 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 (laughs) getting flipped. It's a lot more gentle in my head. I think yours is probably more accurate. Now I make noises like that, and I'm like, how am I going to describe that in the transcript? Yeah, have fun with I'm that. I'm going to articulate that weird noise yeah, I just made. Fu- what is that? I had to do I'm- one for Mima Mounds, where it's like, mimics furious mouth noises. Because <laughs> we're just... <laughs> we're doing... We're talking about, like, Fury Road, and we're like... <laughs> exactly. Yep. It's just like, like that. Do it. Yeah, insert Murloc noises. 
they find the ship and they start the process of getting the stuff back, as one mm-hmm. does. So it's deep, as we said, but they have divers and they're bringing stuff up like plates, like wine bottles, like the merchandise, Whoa. like steamer trunks. It takes years, of course. It's not till 1996 that the underwater crews discover the first gold coins. They end up bringing to the surface 875 $20 double eagle gold coins in near mint condition. Cool! How are they in near mint? They've been at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean for like a hundred years. What? Near mint condition, mm-hmm. my ass? What the heck? I don't <gasps> That's cool! That's cool. Like a double eagle $20 gold coin looks really cool. Just looks really cool. I bet cool. it does. I, dude, although I'm just as excited about the plate. I mean, like. <laughs> take something that's kind of a trash item but toss it around in the ocean for a while and let it wash up on shore and i'm like oh my god it's a treasure i have to bring it home and put it on my cabinet immediately i mean that's a pretty compelling logic there they brought up stuff like i mean porcelain like that's i said cool. terracotta containers yeah. that had, had mineral water oh, in weird it. the cruet bottles goods that were in crates included axe handles doorknobs medicine <laughs> uh, so much opium not so much opium just the fish in that part of the sound <laughs> were just vibing <laughs> for like 10 years it was so good man yeah it was it was terrible they also had 19th century cut crystal sherry glasses cool. and i want to see this because i want to know how this was not just like a small container of powder yeah after tumbling two miles in this cement mixer packing straw man Packing you know? straw, they did a good job. They packed that they good. They packed it good. They were not paying for the insurance. <laughs> no, they wrapped it up good. No. I want to know how they found them, individually or in like a hoard in a chest. Yeah, that part I'm not clear on. I know that successive dives, as this says, brought the recovery to 1,206 gold coins. I think what I like about the gold coins is it feels like pirate treasure. Like, (laughs) they're worth a lot. That's very cool. Things stall at this point because of the legal side of things. As we have talked about, this can get very complicated. And as you indicated, maritime law becomes involved. Yes. Because... Of course, Don says, this is my shipwreck. Yeah. I can easily say that the people who originally owned this ship have abandoned it. <laughs> There's kind of a presumptive abandonment after a certain period of yeah. time with a shipwreck. When you're, if, you're, if your company is not looking for it, and you, yeah. you stop looking for it 125 years go by, I think you can make the case that you've given up on getting that I ship back. So. I don't... I think it's been abandoned. He is saying, essentially, like like you were saying with the other treasures, I did the work, I brought it up, this is my stuff, I found it, like, I put in the investment, this is mine. And California says, no, it is ours. Yo! It gets bitter and aggressive, because the state of California says, we have the rights to all of these shipwrecks, this is legally our property. Oh my gosh. This conflict between them by 1999 goes all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And what happened there was apparently, if you were into constitutional law in the Supreme Court in 1999, which I was not (laughs) at that point, I was thinking about uh, S Club 7 and and Y2K. 
and Sailor Moon. But even for somebody who is as into the Constitution as I am, I never think about the 11th Amendment. Do you think about the 11th That is the one where you can be tried for murder if you kill your brother's Tamagotchi. <laughs> yep. That's, <laughs> That's what you nailed thought it. so. What the hell is the 11th Amendment? So the 11th Amendment, I seriously, before we taped this, was sitting there with, like, a kid's guide. Like, I was reading, like, it explained to me. So if your brother had a bicycle, I'm like, uh-huh, go on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm an adult. <laughs> this was very, very complicated for me to figure out beyond the very surface level. So the very surface level is that the 11th Amendment has to do with sovereign immunity for states, meaning Mm. that basically what had happened during the Revolutionary War that they didn't want to have happen again is somebody during the war who lived in, I don't remember where, not Massachusetts, (laughs) got his shit wrecked by the Massachusetts Army and decided to sue Massachusetts about it. Because they wrecked his farm. Okay. And the government and the Constitutional Convention said, we don't want that to be able to happen anymore. <laughs> oh, you can't hold states feel that, that responsible for shit anymore. You cannot legally sue yeah. them. Which, you know, suing the process of trying to sort of enact this legal remedy yeah. on this other entity. According to the 11th Amendment, you cannot do that to a state that you don't live in and have the federal government help you okay it goes back and forth a lot about what the bounds of this are like can you sue your own state yeah Yeah. what if the state consents to it because that is actually an option is that the state can (laughs) consent to be sued by you you see how i got so confused by this so tell me more about this bicycle analogy not because i need it but because some of our our (laughs) listeners might be confused like i don't know because the rest of it was behind a paywall man (laughs) (laughs) what no okay so within here, here's why. Here's where I landed, and here's my understanding of why this was of so much interest to jurisprudence fans yeah. and constitutional law fans. Is first of all, the U.S. Supreme Court rarely interferes with maritime law. That's not generally considered one of the courts that it is the highest court in the land above. It's sort of a separate floating, no pun intended, concept is maritime law because it's, of course, meant to deal with different nations interacting with each other. The Supreme Court interprets the Constitution. That's one of its major roles. And as a reminder, everyone, the Constitution is not the set of rules for living in America. It is a set of directions about how the government runs and how it treats you as a citizen. Please read it. It's so short. So we, I mean, I didn't know what the 11th Amendment was, but we had. I I didn't know what the 11th Amendment was. That's a freebie, right? right? But in this case. Why it makes it to the Supreme Court is the legal question of whether Don, as an Oregonian, can sue the state of California. Because it's not that there is some Don equivalent living in San Francisco who says, no, it's my shit. Yeah. It legally is the entity that is the state of California (laughs) that says it's the state of California's ship. And Don is in the position of having to go up against a state in court and trying to figure out what court can even handle this. 
Now, the Supreme Court decides unanimously in favor of him. Good! But the thing is, this is not a criminal trial. Yeah. Double jeopardy is not an issue here. They're still hashing this out. All they've managed to do is establish that Don is allowed to get in the ring with California. Oh, God. It is not said that California needs to give up. (laughs) You don't have to pull punches here, California. Yeah. Yeah. All they've done is say, yes, it's legal for you two to be going at it like this. (laughs) So California says, I'm going to keep doing this legally because I'm sure for them, they're like, if we set this precedent... That if you make yourself a pain in the ass, it's not our ship anymore. It would be wild, because it's the 90s, right? Like, it's seriously, it's 1999. Titanic has been out for two years. Yeah. The technology that James Cameron and Robert Ballard and these people are coming up with is so amazing that there is this huge boom of found shipwrecks and recovered stuff. And a lot of them are going to be off the coast of California, because... <laughs> It's hard to go up the coast. Not to mention, that is a long frickin' coast. It's a long coast, yeah. It is just a lot of mileage. I mean, if I was California, what I would be doing is saying there are a billion shipwrecks out there that we are not going to raise. We will just enact a law that says if you find anything, we get 10%. Like, Yeah, I was going to say, this is the me and Halloween candy. Yep, Yep, this is the parent tax (laughs) is exactly right. Because tell you what, California, 10% of whatever he pulls out of the ocean is more dollars than you were going to have if he didn't pull it out of the ocean. Like, it's a straight-up net yeah. gain. You didn't have to do anything. He's he's picking up litter, California. He's keeping your coastal <laughs> waters beautiful and giving you a little bit off the top. Just why don't you say thank you and let him move on? Thank you. Don Knotts, or whatever his last name is. It's not Knotts. <laughs> Don Knotts. <laughs> thank you. Pretty good, pretty good. What ends up happening, as often happens when, when people get sued, is they settle. And what he agrees to do is hand over 200 gold coins that are now in Sacramento in a bank vault. That's 20%. He auctions off his coins to pay all the legal bills. Oh, I know. Oh, baby. But he gets $5.3 million. Oh. So I like to think he still had some left over oh, after that. That's an average of $5,250 per coin. Shoot, dude. And he can still keep going out there. So he did. He found a few more coins. They found some more artifacts. But here's what they didn't find. A safe. The strong boxes <gasps> of all the $200,000 of gold that the payroll guy was carrying. <gasps> The all the diamonds, all the personal wealth of all the people who were there, the Wells Fargo funds. Like they found some coins, but there is a lot of coins still there. Remember, this is fifty million dollars worth of gold and treasure down there. He's got about five or six million dollars of it up. Oh my gosh. He's scratched the surface of this treasure trove. Yeah. And I didn't get a clear image. I wasn't able to see a video like there was with the Titanic or anything. So I don't know how intact the ship is. I don't know if they're like, we found it. They mean, you know, we found it and it's all in one or two pieces. Or they mean there's bits scattered all over this giant debris field. I don't know how easy it is to find this stuff. I don't know, honestly, in his shoes. I don't know that I keep telling people Mm. if I found gold. No, no, I think I'd keep my mouth shut. Yeah, 
Yeah, <laughs> just like Daddy Fisherman. Does. Yes, yes. You wait for a more favorable legal situation. <laughs> just, just running out that judicial clock, my friend, and then. Mm-hmm. Now there are a couple of physical locations that you actually can check out. One is that in Crescent City there is a memorial to the mm-hmm. victims. That's not actually a cemetery. For the most part of the bodies that they recovered, most of them they couldn't identify. Okay. The ones that they could often got shipped back to, you know, Sacramento yeah. or Seattle or wherever it made sense for them to be. And most of the bodies they never got back at yeah. all. They did get a lot of debris. One thing that washed up was the ship's wheel, which oh. you can go see in the lobby of Dan and Louie's Oyster Bar in Old Town, Portland. <laughs> I, not to Indiana Jones it, but that belongs in a museum. Like, <laughs> okay. Good job, Dan and Louie. I, I want to go there. I want to eat oysters and look at a yeah. treasure. Do you think we could touch it? That sounds- I want to touch it. I don't know. I'll just do it. I don't know. Dan and Louis has had it since at least the 50s. Oh my goodness. So I don't know where they got it. They used to have it at the end of the bar. Now the ship's wheel is in the lobby. So at least you can get a good look Real at it. Real good look. It's, it's, it's so weird because like I'm looking at a picture of that wheel with all these guys around it getting their picture taken. I'm like, oh, you're all going to die. <laughs> this is so bad. And now, and now the ship's wheel is around and I can go have mm-hmm. happy hour looking yeah. at it. That's weird. That's weird to me, guys. It's weird. Anyway, there's that that you can check out. Now, in response to this very high-profile, very tragic shipwreck, of course, people said, we need to change stuff. So that's where you get the St. George Reef Lighthouse, which was the most expensive lighthouse ever made in the country. Because it is very hard to put things (laughs) off the coast (laughs) into the Pacific because it's rough. (laughs) The water hits it from all sides. It is six miles out into the ocean. (laughs) It's on Northwest Seal Rock, so it's on one of the teeth, basically. Yeah. Part of the line. Okay, well, this is freaking Wikipedia telling me it was Sir Francis Drake who called him Dragon Rocks. I don't know what to believe. My friends at lighthousefriends.com said it was Sir George Vancouver. Yeah, I like them better. You think somebody would just go on the internet and be wrong? It's not possible. Know. It still took years. You know, it goes down in 1865. Nobody even gets the thing done until 1892 because they keep having to like re-up the funding for it at which point the damn gold rush is over but it's also it takes 10 years to build because it is miserable (sighs) yes the base is the solid block of concrete and granite and then they quarry out all these granite blocks to build it and you got to get them out on a boat even getting out of the boat that you're in onto (laughs) this rock (laughs) will injure you you will several people died trying to do that that's how rough this was it cost seven hundred and fifty-two thousand dollars in eighteen hundred money. Cow. I'm like, I want to look up how much that would be today. Actually, if we found all the treasure that went down with the ship, we might be able to pay off the lighthouse they made in reaction to the ship going down. <laughs> we today that would be twenty-one point five million dollars. <laughs> that is so much money. Such a pricey fucking lighthouse. <laughs> That's a heavy house now. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, there's light, but the emotional toll. Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. When it was an operation, you could see the lights in Oregon and in California. That is how boldly it was it was shining this thing. And I say when it was an operation. So the light can be seen from Brookings, Oregon to Crescent City, California. A lighthouse preservation society has put a light back in it to be nice. Because storms routinely crested over the top deck of the caisson. I don't know what a caisson is. And in 1952, storm waves even broke the windows in the lantern room 150 feet above sea level. Stop it. The ocean was like, everyone wrecks here. Yeah, I said we're wrecking I today. I said. <laughs> oh my goodness. Seriously, you know the lighthouse situation is out of hand when the waves come in at the top and go down the stairs. <laughs> just, just, you know, light, light out, it used to be like a big old fucking torch. So just imagine the water coming in and that poor lighthouse guy at the top just watching it sizzle out like a giant match being like, well... Do you remember stage crew in high school and Fresnel lights? Yeah. This was an eight-foot Fresnel lens. It was removed when the lighthouse was decommissioned, and it was given to the Del Norte County Historical Museum in Crescent City, which you can see to this day, (laughs) along with some artifacts from the brother Jonathan, because although they weren't, it sounds like hugely generous with the museum, they did give them some coins and some artifacts to display. Oh, good job, Don Knotts. Uh, so you can go see them along with this giant, you know, lens taller than you <laughs> in the historical society. The most society worthless light City. ever. A little too little yeah. too late? Or- yeah. I don't know, but you can go see the lighthouse. Still, there are helicopter tours that you can take, and that's how I know I'll never see it, because I'm very afraid of helicopters. I don't understand how they fly. That means they could stop at any moment. Jason's big desire in life is to take helicopter flying lessons, and I'm like, that's a fun dream that you can attain on your own. Yeah, and also, anytime you do it, don't tell me that's what you're doing. Tell me you're going to Tell me you're going to So that I can, like, not just stress out all day. No, I never want to know. So, yeah, you can take a a, <laughs> a helicopter tour and go see this old lighthouse six miles out in the ocean. Another thing you can do, if you want to physically see some of the effects of this wreck northwest, is in the Dells in Oregon. There's this very distinct building called the Mint. It is the Dells Mint, and it was never finished. Okay. It was partially constructed in 1869. And before they even finished it, they gave up and gave it to the city. And so it says the Mint Building was most recently home to the Aaron Glen Winery. Like, okay. Right. It has been used as a warehouse. It's been used as a storage company. It's been used as all kinds of stuff. The reason why they never finished it is the guy who was supposed to come run it was on the Brother John. Oh, dear. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, did he have all the money for the mint? Is that part of the treasure? <laughs> no. But certainly, you know, he knew how to run such a thing. 
and getting a hold of somebody on short notice and the whole country's disrupted because the president yeah. just got shot is a little tricky. Yeah. And it, that's part of the reason why the Dallas Mint was never finished. And it's still there, I guess. You can go have wine there. All right. Let me see. Do I have any other important pieces to cover here? I did not look very hard for anything about ghosts. The most supernatural thing that I came across organically was that kid with the weird premonition and all the other weird premonitions that people mm-hmm. had. I guess, to me... Some of the premonitions sound like people picking up on stuff after the fact, right? Like, whoever that poor person was who said, I hope your plane crashes right before that horrible crash that killed, like, Buddy Holly and everyone. People make tasteless jokes or have weird vibes or worry about stuff. And then if it comes true, it doesn't mean you're psychic. It just means that you thought about a risk that could happen. I do wonder... Especially if any of these people had interacted with the ship before or had noticed the news the month before, if they were reacting to the fact that it had been busted up mm-hmm. and repaired very mm-hmm. shoddily and hastily, like, were they picking up on that? Were they picking up on other cues that the ship was not yeah. safe? But the thing is... And this may just be the bias of the newspapers at the time. There's not a lot of indication that Captain DeWolf did anything wrong. Really? Like, he was working fast. He was working overloaded, which was extremely common at the time. And he got in a dangerous situation with the storm and turned around to go make safe harbor. Like, normally when we tell these stories, it's the idiot who won't stop when the storm is too Totally. Like, he did what he should have done. It's just that's how bad it is. (laughs) That's... Is the ocean. Poseidon will pick you up and just slam you on a rocket. Like, like you're juicing an like you say, Yeah, you're just making like, some lemonade there out of a little ship. Well, like, yeah, it's the fucking graveyard of the Pacific, yo. It didn't get that name because it's a nice yeah. place to sail through. Yeah, it's it was rough. And again, like, there were enough lifeboats for people. Yeah. The, it sounds like the crew was being very responsive and organized and trying to make stuff happen. Yeah. It sounds like there was a little too much deference to the upper class people. Always. On the ship. Oh, that was a story that I found in the newspapers when I went exploring. There was this old lady who was on the ship. She was one of the women rescued. She doesn't have any of her stuff, right? Like, again, she's in, like, her nightgown. She had a first-class cabin. The company that owned the brother Jonathan said, okay, we're going to send you back to Albany where your son lives. And they sent her back steerage. (laughs) 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 And they didn't even, like, give her a stipend to buy any clothes or anything. So (laughs) this poor lady who's lost everything in this horrifically traumatic thing. Now, good on her because, you know, there's no Yelp yet. She called the newspapers and was like, would you like to hear some (laughs) wild shit? Or the 1865 old lady equivalent. Yeah, right. I mean, and, <laughs> like, eat the rich and all and that, but come <laughs> on, be a little bit nice come, to her. Yeah, like, this is like when your plane gets rescheduled and they give you, like, a, a $5 voucher for Wolfgang Puck Pizza, and you're like, I don't, okay, thank you. <laughs> I don't really solve any of my problems, but I, I appreciate your acknowledging that there's a problem. They shouldn't have enough 
bedding. Like she was cold the whole I time. Bet. Like, come on, oh. throw some throw some resources at this woman if you want anybody to ever sail on one of your ships again. Because that was what the newspaper person concluded. He's like, we're not using them anymore, right? Everyone, like, no, we've decided, haven't we? Okay, yeah. You can make a mistake. People make mistakes, and accidents happen. But that's a dick move. Such a dick move. <laughs> it's how you respond to those mistakes and accidents that really prove to the populace what kind of company you are. Right, because remember when we're talking about they're going from the East Coast to the West Coast, there's no Panama Canal. They're going the long way. They're going round the horn. The Straits of Magellan are coming for you. Yeah, this is a long oh. trip. Long trip. God, oh. I feel so bad for basically everybody, everybody involved. Oh, in yeah. This. It was not fun for anyone. If somebody says, oh, there were, you know, seven important historical figures involved in this, normally I'll be interested in, like, one. But this, it was like, no, you've got your Mad Max customs agent <laughs> trying to, like, stage a, a hostile takeover with cannons. You've got his bitter rival, the man who consoled Mary Todd Lincoln after the assassination. You've got fucking... General George yes. Wright, who I just want to like spit on the ground oh, yes. when I hear his name, Disgusting. and his wife. You've got this newspaper guy who's doing this like, frankly, what sounds like a Hollywood story. Absolutely, of writing these little notes in pencil because he knows the the ink will get soaked away once he goes in yes. the water. You've got this spicy madam. <sighs> With her soiled doves going into the water with $7,000 worth of diamonds and two mm-hmm. life jackets. Uh, this story has everything. Everything you could possibly <laughs> want. Psychic three-year-olds. Gold bars. <laughs> lying fishermen. The world's most expensive lighthouse. <laughs> sea lions. <laughs> An oyster bar. <laughs> The Supreme Court. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's why instead of bringing you a bunch of little shipwrecks, I brought you one that took two episodes to get. It's so worth it. This is (laughs) this is so OG for us having one Mm -hmm. big fatty episode that needs to get broken. Oh, because it's so juicy. Yeah, and that every little component of it, um, oh god, it was just wild. And I'm sure there's ones I missed, too, where it's going to be like, oh yeah, and you know who built that ship? Thomas Edison. (laughs) (laughs) Kirkland Cutter. I didn't even tell you that Cornelius Vanderbilt used to own the brother Jonathan. Stop it. Yeah, he briefly owned it while it was in New York. I think that thing was better designed for going to Staten Island oh, and back when it was Clearly for, it was. For how we do things out here. And then the whole story ends in treasure nepotism, which is just marvelous. Yeah. Yeah, that's the story of the brother Jonathan in all its glory. Oh and maybe it'll be a, a Hecla or a Raleigh where occasionally strange updates come our way of Forrest Fenn's treasure, which I still owe you an update on. But maybe I'll I'll have to find another story that has treasure in it to combine with that one, because this did not have room. It did not have room. (laughs) It had everything else. My God, it was bursting at the seams with references and intrigue and side quest. I loved it. 
<laughs> interconnecting things on your big conspiracy board with yarn and push pins <laughs> and circling treasure. <laughs> Question mark? Expensive lighthouse. <laughs> <sighs> All right. In full disclosure, we had technical difficulties, so we are taping this as a pickup later, which means, although there weren't patrons to thank in the beginning of the episode... <laughs> Time has passed. So I'm going to do some patron shout outs now so they still get in this episode and I don't have to worry about remembering them for next time. So I would like to thank Bellamy. I'd like to thank Bellamy, Alexis, Michael, Amelia, Becca, Sassy, and Kim. Why are you saying thank you? Thank you. Thank you. Weirdly, I said it. I know. I said it for one, and then I was like, "Shit, I can't just do it for one." And then I had to keep going. But then I knew it was weird when I was doing it, and I thought maybe you wouldn't put me on front street for everyone. I'm never gonna sit down in the restaurant. I'm stuck at the door. Amazing. All right. That's all I have to tell you about the brother Jonathan. I'll tell folks the usual, which is if they want to join us on social media, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We have our website at WeJabroads.com where I upload transcripts and so forth. And you can also get the link from there to go check out our merch, stickers, things like that. You can also look at Patreon.com slash Thank you to all our existing patrons, new patrons, mm, yes. past patrons. I am going to check something real quick. Let me see. Oh, we have 20 downloads left to get to 200,000 downloads. Oh, my god! I can't believe we've been doing this for almost 200,000. Wow. Wow. Uh-huh. Thanks, guys. Yeah, oh, I saw on the Patreon, by the way, that Devin Kelly canceled. (laughs) (laughs) When we started the Patreon, we wanted to make it look like we had some patrons, so we both... We did. We salted the pot. My husband's still contributing $10 a month to us, so I, you know. One of the new patrons signed up at $10, and I don't know how they did that, and I'm afraid to ask. (laughs) Just just take their money list. Just take it. I didn't even think they could do that anymore. (laughs) They liked us twice. They signed up double. (laughs) Somehow. Somehow. Other than that, folks, you know what we want you to do. We need you to live weird. To die weird. And stay weird. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Mm